The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Quick survey here. How many people here have ever been part of a protest? My first protest was at the north end of Hamilton. It was in 2015. The, the John Street Towers. Uh, what was going on there was the, the corporation who owned the buildings and who managed them was jacking up the rent prices in order. And what they said was that it was in order to pay for improvements. Uh, what a lot of people thought was that this was a way for them to evict the a lot of the like low income tenants who lived there and make room for professionals and turn a bunch of the, these apartments into condominiums. Uh, when I heard about it, I went uh, by myself and I like made a sign and the whole bit and I walked with them and I joined in some of the chants. It was a pretty educational experience for me. I'd never been to, to anything like that. Uh, it turned out um, there was only a handful of us who showed up, like 20, 25 of us for a, for a building that size. But there were some professional protesters who came and they had their own signs that were really, really well done. They had their own really cleverly crafted chants that they marched and, and led us in. And it turned out that they had come from Toronto. And I knew that because I heard them saying that they needed to catch the GO bus back to Toronto because there was another protest that they were going to be part of after this one. CH News, the local uh, news station, they interviewed those professional protesters. And, and after those the pros were gone, the tenants of 181 John Street, they passed around a megaphone. And that's where we really got to hear what it's like to like live in the building. They talked about uh, bed bugs and leaky pipes, and they talked about noise and drugs and broken elevators and, and hydro that doesn't, doesn't always work. It seemed to me like these people don't expect this to get better. Like they want to be heard, but they don't expect it that this protest is going to change anything. And, and so some of them are going to end up staying and paying more for their rent. Some of them are going to end up probably leaving and living with family. And, and some of these people seem to expect to be on the street before too long. And it seemed to me like, I, I, I kind of wondered as I was there, like, what would this be like if this building were in, you know, like Dundas or Ancaster or Burlington? Like, how would this go down differently? Like, would those people, would people allow this? Like, would they have to call people in from Toronto in order to come and help them? And, and I didn't think so. And, and, and that was one of the times when it, it seemed really clear to me that there are two Hamiltons. Like, I don't know if you know this or not. It feels, it seems to me there are two Hamiltons. There's one that is like stereotypically poor, sometimes homeless, begging for change at intersections, sometimes riding around on a mobility scooter, sometimes sleeping in a tent and collecting social assistance. There's, there's that version of Hamilton. And there's another version of Hamilton where they, you know, it's, it's the Hamilton of the gentrifiers, artists and musicians and folks who join Supercrawl and are buying up condos or or two and a half story homes downtown and drinking $5 coffee and shopping at Costco. And those are the two Hamilton and it's Hamiltons and it's like the two shall not meet. Now, we're continuing this morning through our series in Hamilton as it is in heaven and what we're doing here is each week we're kind of looking at a different issue that faces our Hamilton neighbor, how it affects them, and, and what the church ought to be doing about it if we can. And uh, we began by talking about God's love for the city. We, we talked about poverty. Last week we got together and Courtney and I, we, we had a conversation about uh, mental illness in Hamilton. And this week we're focusing on homelessness and gentrification together. And you're going to see why we're doing those, those in the same week. 
But I'm going to share with you the thesis that I'm running from this morning. It's this, homelessness and gentrification equally contribute to the lack of flourishing in a city. Like neither is better or worse, okay? But scripture gives the church a theology that allows us to respond faithfully to both of these. Today, I'm pretty excited to share what, that, what I think that that is. And to do that, I want to first share some definitions. Then we're going to talk about what the situation in Hamilton actually is. Then we're going to sort of just develop that theology and then apply it to these uh, twin problems of homelessness and gentrification. So to begin, what are we actually talking about? Let's make sure we're using the right language. First of all, when we're talking about homelessness, I think for the most part, we get that. But we might not realize that there's actually lots of reasons why a person might end up homeless. The stereotype is that a, a homeless person got that way either because they were drug addicted or because they are lazy and they refuse to work and they would just rather collect social assistance. And, and just, you know, like that's just not true. There are actually lots of reasons why a, a person might end up being homeless and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to do much research in order to find this out. In, in lots of cases, a person who's ended up homeless had a job and their wage increase wasn't going up in proportion to their living costs. So that's one reason why they might end up on the street. Another reason might be because their landlord wanted to get rid of them through what's called renovictions, like what happened at, on, um, on John Street North in the, in the tower there. Sometimes the person is, is not healthy. There's maybe mental illness or physical disability or something like that. And it makes them it hard for them to manage on their own uh, in a home. Other people are, are homeless because they needed to leave an abusive situation. And so sometimes it's a combination of lots of these. But homeless is not just one thing. There's, it's a very complex problem. And there's lots of reasons why a person might end up homeless. Now, what do we mean by gentrification? You might not have even heard that word before, and if not, that's okay. It actually comes from an old English word called the gentry. The gentry were the people in Europe, they were the ruling class who were rich because they owned all the property. Like they owned all the land and they could control a country's economy by deciding who lived on the land and who didn't. And so lots of people are talking about gentrification these days, especially in cities. One of them is a pastor named Michael Natelli. He says that, um, he, he says gentrification is, he says the process typically sees lower educated minority majority communities displaced and replaced by more well-educated, typically young white communities that are seeking to move to a city's up and coming hotspots. So there's this important idea of displacement that's happening. Okay. Another author, his name is Peter Moskowitz. He literally wrote the book on gentrification. He says that uh, at its deepest level, gentrification is really about reorienting the purpose of cities away from being spaces that provide for the poor and middle classes and toward being spaces that generate capital for the rich. So that important dynamic, that part of gentrification is that it's generating income and wealth for one group and not everybody. And depending on which vision of Hamilton you are more familiar with, you might assume that like in a city like Hamilton, homelessness is a problem and gentrification is the solution at best, or that's, that gentrification uh, at worst is just a neutral thing. Like it's just, you know, bare market forces. And, and I'm, what I'm saying is no, they both actually do harm to the city. They're two parts of the same sort of system and the church needs to talk about it. Uh, there's a Christian blogger in Portland. Her name's D.L. Mayfield. She says that 
At the core of Christianity is the call toward love of neighbor. When the poorest of your neighbors continually face the brunt of a system designed not to care for them, gentrification becomes a church issue. Gentrification becomes a church issue. That's why we're talking about it today. And so we need to now understand what is the situation in Hamilton? What's really going on here? And I think as we, as we look at it, we see that these are actually kind of an ecosystem. Let's talk about first about uh, homelessness. As it turns out, and you might be interested to, to, to learn, that this, the situation in Hamilton uh, for homelessness isn't actually as bad as you might assume. Like for a city our size, we have fewer than 3,000 people who experience homelessness either in a short-term or chronic way. Of all the cities in Canada, we are fifth for the total number of homeless people. But when you measure homelessness in a more fair, equal way, in terms of like the number of homeless people per thousand in the city, we're actually 14th. We're actually in 14th place behind cities like Toronto, even behind Saskatoon and Winnipeg and Sudbury and Vancouver. And, and our, our homeless numbers are now are down way, like way down from where they were even 10 years ago. And so bottom line, homelessness is becoming less and less of a problem in Hamilton. And that's good. We want to celebrate that. And there's a couple of reasons why. One of the reasons homelessness is going down is because Hamilton has really invested in affordable housing and these creating these programs that help lift the homeless out of their poverty and, and getting them into homes. And those programs, in many ways, are working. So that's really great. We want to celebrate that. Lots of, lots of homeless people have access to supports that they didn't have before. So that's one reason why there's less homelessness in, in Hamilton. But another reason why there, there's less homelessness, and I don't know if maybe you could guess this, it's actually because many of the homeless are leaving. Many of the homeless people are actually leaving Hamilton for cities down the highway or up the highway that are more affordable. So they're moving to St. Catharines or to London, or they're moving up to Kitchener or Sudbury. And, and so the numbers regarding homelessness are kind of deceiving in some ways. The truth is, that when we talk about gentrification, Hamilton is actually a great place to live if you can afford $1,362 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. And that's that's actually the average right now, $1,362 a month for a one-bedroom. There's all this buzz around Hamilton. It's an exciting place to live. And so because of that, in the last 10 years, storefront rental costs are up 150%. And there are 2,000 apartments just in the last 10 years, 2,000 apartments that have been turned, that have been converted into condominiums, like high-priced condominiums. And, and last year, from what I could find, the, the average price of a home in Hamilton was $545,000, $545,000, which is up 45k from the year before, which is interesting because Heather and I, we bought our house 14 years ago for 165k and we thought at the time like that was a ridiculous amount of money like how would we ever afford to pay that off and so we should ask like what is driving this boom what's where's this coming from who is responsible there's a lot of things going on here there's a lot of there's a lot of in fact there's a lot of blame to go around some of it is condo condo developers some of it is is businesses that have have moved in some of it is is greedy landlords but some of them are, are just these people who have come in here to Hamilton and they just want to start a family. Like, can you imagine? Families like this who, who moved in to Hamilton and they paid $499,000 in 2015 
for a, a big home after selling their house in Toronto for 845K. So th these guys are part of the problem. So are these guys. They bought a house in 2013. They left a tiny little loft in Toronto where they were paying 1250 a month for this tiny little loft. And they bought a house in Hamilton for 370K in 2015. These guys came and bought a house in 2013 for 190K. They also came from Toronto. These guys came in 2014. They bought a house for 376,000, which went 26K over asking, also from Toronto. These guys came in 2015, again from Toronto, and they paid 282K for a house in the Delta neighborhood. And I actually know them and our kids go to school together. And there are more and more and more people who are coming all the time. Okay, I can't be mad at them. These are just families who just want to live. Like it turns out you actually can't blame gentrifiers for gentrification. We are all gentrifiers as it turns out. So it's not fair to blame gentrifiers for gentrification. And it's in the same way that it's actually not fair to blame the homeless for their homelessness in, in, in most cases. And so you got to ask, where does this leave us? Well, on the one hand, you know, Hamilton's poverty kind of means that like nobody, nobody kicks up a fuss when a, a house gets sold from out from under the, the tenants, like gentrifiers actually depend on that. Even if they're not responsible, they sort of de depend on that happening. And on the other hand, without the gentrifiers, the homeless in Hamilton wouldn't have access to the supports that the taxes of the wealthy pay for. So it, it leaves us with this crazy, strange ecosystem where these two Hamiltons need each other, even if they don't interact with each other, even if they can't stand each other, even if they blame each other for what's wrong with the city. And that is the situation that we find ourselves in. And we should ask ourselves, what does God think about that? Like, does, does God care? And, and to see that, I think we actually need to develop a theology of place and property. And I think scripture gives us that. Um, like for starters, we, we could talk about the story of Naboth's vineyard, which, which David read for us earlier. This is a kind of an obscure story in scripture, but it's really important, actually. It really sort of typifies the relationship between the, the corrupt kings of Israel and Judah and God's people. Because what you've got is you've got a man named Naboth, who is the rightful owner of his family vineyard, and Ahab, this greedy king who wants the land for himself. He's rich and powerful and he offers Naboth to buy it, but Naboth turns him down. So Ahab goes into this big depression and his, his wife Jezebel finds him and says like, come on, you're the king. You can deal with this. You can have him murdered and then take his land. And that's exactly what happens. She sends some letters to Naboth's, uh, to the elders of Naboth's town, and she sets up a situation where they, they have him killed. At the end of verse 16, Naboth is dead and his property is now in the hands of the king. But the story doesn't end there because God sends Elijah the prophet. And in verse 18, Elijah goes and he confronts Ahab and he says, uh, God says, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, and you'll say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Let me say that again. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, in that very same place shall dogs lick up your own blood. And then in verse 23, 
the dogs will eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And, and, and that's exactly what happens. In the very same spot where Naboth had been killed and he bled, the dogs end up licking up the blood of Ahab when he died. In the very same town where Jezebel sent these letters and she turned the elders against Naboth, in that very same town, that very same place, Jezebel ended up being eaten by dogs. That's in the Bible. That happened. And, and you should go like, well, what is this? What's going on here? What's so special about Naboth that God would intervene in this way? And, and there's nothing. Like, that. that's just it. What we see is God making a point that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And place matters to God. And property matters to God. God, God has, like, entrusted his creation to the Naboths and the Ahabs in the world. And, and he's, you know, given it to us to steward and to take care of. And if we take care of it, there's actually enough for everybody. If we take care of it, there is enough for everyone. And so theologians have been talking about this for a really long time. One who I came across, which was really helpful, his name was John Agege. He says that we are to be good stewards of this world. We're commanded to bring everything under the righteous, under the righteous and just rule of Jesus Christ, using every good gift he gives us to create a world where everyone has what they need, nobody needs to be afraid, and creation is radically flourishing. He says, gentrification is a direct affront to the cultural mandate that God gives us as human beings. Any development and revitalization of a neighborhood that leads to the involuntary displacement of already existing people, history, and culture is inequitable and against God's desire for wholeness and flourishing for all of his creation. Let me read that last part again. Any development and revitalization of a neighborhood that leads to the involuntary displacement of already existing people, history, and culture is inequitable, and it's against God's desire for wholeness and flourishing for all of his creation. And so this story is actually really, really important. And if this were the only part of the Bible that we had, like if this were all of this inspired scripture we would we had, we could still conclude that whether you are rich or poor, or whether you are a king or a peasant, that everybody should have access to a piece of creation. Like in the economy of God, in God's mind, there is enough for everyone if we care for creation properly. And so that's what I mean by a theology of place and property. But it turns out scripture actually has a lot more to say about it. Like God's people are personally to care for the homeless. So Leviticus 19, uh, God says, this was like a law for Israel. When an alien resides with you in the land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You're to love him as yourself. You were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, remember when you were homeless in Egypt? Remember those days? Yeah, that's why I want you to be kind to the homeless around you. You're going to treat them like you're equal. You're not better than they are. You're going to treat the homeless like you're equal because you were once homeless when in the days when you were in, in slavery in Egypt. Third, we need to see that God's people were to adapt their lifestyle in order to be able to bless the homeless. Like the ability to bless the homeless was going to be just a part of Israel's normal lifestyle. They were to adapt their lifestyle in order to bless the homeless. Leviticus 19, again, uh, God's instructions for, for farmers. When you reap the harvest of your land, 
You're not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. In other words, you're not going to harvest all that you could. You're not going to gather every single cent you could possibly gather from your, from, your har- from your fields and from your vineyard. It's like, is it, is it wrong to have a profitable business in, in, in God's mind? No, it is not wrong. To have, to, it's not wrong to be profitable, but God's people are not driven by property or by profit alone. We're not, our bottom line is not, main, not mainly or only profit. And so if our business is successful, if, if we get rich and yet refuse to help the poor, as far as God is concerned, that is not a successful business because we are supposed to adapt our lifestyle in order to be able to care for the poor and the homeless among us. Uh, another thing we see is that God's prophets uh, were his voice standing up to the corrupt kings and rulers uh, in, in those days, like Jeremiah. Jeremiah came and he stood up to the kings of Judah and he says, You who sit on the throne of David, you, your officers, and your people who enter these gates, this is what the Lord says. Administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien. And he goes on and he says, If you do not obey these words, then I swear by myself, this is the Lord's declaration, that this house will become a ruin. That's Jeremiah. We could also quote Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel goes to the king and he says, Look, every prince of Israel within you has used his strength to shed blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt. The resident alien, the homeless. That's what that means. The resident alien is exploited within you. The fatherless and the widow are oppressed in you. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will act. And if you want to ask, Where was God for the poor in those days? What was he doing on behalf of the poor and the homeless? What was he doing in order to deal with the injustice of gentrification? The truth is that God was there speaking through his prophets, calling out the kings of Israel who were greedy and corrupt and were using their power to exploit the poor and to oppress the poor and to privilege their wealthy friends. These kings should have been part of the solution, right? Like they were entrusted with leadership in God's, among God's people and they should have been part of the solution, but they were part of the problem. And the prophets were the ones who on behalf of God, they showed up and they spoke God's word. That's a big part of this theology of place is there are some who are to show up and be God's prophetic voice against the, the corrupt. And then the final piece is this. It's just Jesus. Jesus himself. We need to remember that Jesus was homeless. Luke chapter 9. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus goes to him. Foxes have dens. Birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so just so you know, for Jesus, homelessness was a choice. Like he wasn't gentrified out of his place. Uh, And also, it wouldn't have been a sin for Jesus to own property if he had wanted to. It just wasn't part of his mission. And so it's, it's interesting to think, like everything that Jesus did, everything he accomplished and taught, he did uh, from a posture of homelessness. And so Christians are the last people in the world who are going to be prejudiced against the homeless or assume that in order to, have to, you know, to make a big impact in the world, you need to have a lot of property. 
Because Jesus shows us, actually, no, you don't, you don't need to. And so when we kind of step back, we put all of these things together. Why, does, why do these things concern God? I, I think if, if this theology is right, if what we're doing is right here, then neither homelessness nor gentrification is part of God's design. Both of them are a result of sin. Now, what I'm not saying is that if, you are, if you're a homeless person, you're a sinner for being homeless. And I'm not saying that if you move here from Toronto, you're a sinner for, for, being, you know, for, for gentrifying. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we are each participating in systems that create homelessness and gentrification. And those systems are actually broken and evil and divisive and they are oppressive and they are dehumanizing. And in many ways, they're actually idolatrous. They set up idols. And at the end of the day, whichever Hamilton you are part of, whether you're part of the Hamilton of the gentrifiers or the Hamilton of the homeless, you can't flourish. You are not experiencing what God has meant, has, has designed for us. And that, I think, is why God is concerned about these things. Now, what can we be expected to do about it? What, how, do we, how do we put this theology in action? I think there's three ways that we apply this theology to uh, the situation facing us vis-a-vis -vis homelessness and gentrification. One of them is relief. Uh, what I mean here is this is just, this is what you, this is what happens when you give a person spare change. If possible, I'd rather give a grocery card. If even better than that is being able to take that person shopping spend some time together. And I know that that's not always possible, but that, those are some examples of what relief at the personal level can look like. On a larger level, relief can look like giving money to organizations that support the, the homeless or, or offer housing or affordable housing. Volunteering with these organizations is, is a way of offering relief. I know that as a church, we are doing some of that. We are, we are giving and also some of our individual people and families are volunteering with some of these organizations as well, like through 541, through those of you who volunteer at the Dream Center. So those are examples of relief because they meet a person's immediate personal needs. So, so relief is one way that we will apply this theology. But another one, I think, is resistance. And I think that this is just as important. Like this is where we use our voice to say no, this isn't okay. And this is where we sort of in the same vein as like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, we stand up and we say that, no, we are not okay with seeing the homeless pushed to the margins. And we're not okay with seeing these laws that are enacted that favor the wealthy. It's just, it's just not okay. And so on an individual level, we can do that as simply as by, by voting for the counselor who we think is going to do the best job. You can write to your, your, your ward counselor. You can, they're all, almost all of them are active in social media. And so you can be in touch with them very quickly that way and have an influence. But, you know, collectively, when a church does this, when a church stands up and, and says no, then that church has a prophetic voice. And, and we sort of, we continue the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament prophets who in the same way that they were standing up to corruption and injustice, we're doing the same. And I think that that's another important way that we'll apply this theology of place and property. And the third way is reunion. The third way is by reunion. What I mean here is, I actually think that the church is the people, we are the people who can bring the two Hamiltons back together. I really, I really believe that. Like, think about it. We don't, we actually don't cheer for either vision of Hamilton as they are, right? You know that, right? Like, we, we actually recognize that both visions of Hamilton are broken. 
Like we're not cheering for the gentrifiers in the sense that gentrifiers love what Hamilton can be. Gentrifiers look at Hamilton as a blank slate. They love Hamilton in terms of its potential. They see it as something that they can rewrite and, and reshape and, and sort of ignore in many ways what was going on here for generations before them. And, the, and, and I think that the gospel confronts that in some ways. And the gospel says we don't pray that it's going to be in Hamilton as it is in Toronto. So we're not cheering for that vision of, of Hamilton, but we're also not cheering for the, the poor in, in the sense that typically what the poor want is to go back to the way things were before they were poor, to go back to the days when they had a good job, when they were comfortable, almost like the gentrifiers that they look down on today. And the gospel actually confronts and corrects that, that vision of Hamilton as well, because the gospel says we don't hope that it's going to be in Hamilton as it was in Hamilton 40 years ago. And so as it turns out, both of them have put their faith in wealth. Both of them are, are, are wrong and both of them are just as lost. Both, both of them are just as, as sinful and in need of forgiveness and, and healing and community. And so, so relief and resistance reunion, these are the ways we're going to apply uh, our theology in a way that's in line with the gospel. Because what the gospel says is that, like one of the things that happened on the cross, if you, if you remember, is that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility, right, between the groups that couldn't stand each other, the groups that excluded each other and marginalized each other. And Jesus tore down the dividing wall between them, and he made one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And, and when we gave our lives to Jesus, we had all kinds of things between us too. And those things, those things ceased to become our main identity, those things that divided us. And Jesus gathered us as a new people, as a new uh, family, a new city. Jesus gathered us into an alternate city where we are, we are many and we are diverse and yet we are one in Christ. And that's what I mean by reunion. I mean that there is, there is room in the church for both the homeless and the gentrifier vision of Hamilton. I'd encourage us, maybe, maybe think of it, of it this way. There, even, even when we look at this church, this church is full of people who shouldn't get along, but we can through Jesus. Eventually, if you, if you ask enough people, eventually you'll get to somebody who looks at us like we're the problem. Like there are people out there who look at these guys and say like, that's, they're the problem. They're what's wrong with Hamilton. And these guys are what's wrong with Hamilton. And you know, some of us, we should, you know, we shouldn't get along. Some of us are, some of us are Oakville and some of us are Hamilton. And some of us are artists and some of us are doctors and we're dog people and we're cat people and we are white collar and we are blue collar and we are some of us are country and some of us are city and some of us are, are different ethnicities and some and different languages and we are Enneagram ones and fours and nines and we are conservatives and we are progressives. And, uh, and there's all of these reasons why people, even just in this church, all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't get along and all kinds of reasons why, if you ask the right person, we're the problem. But look at what happened in Jesus. He got a hold of us, and those things that used to divide us, they no longer do. They're not our main identity anymore. Our main identity is now Christ, and so we can see our differences, and we can love each other anyways. 
And it's happening. It's actually happening. I see it. It's like the church is God's secret for dismantling these divisions uh, between us. It's like, bring the gentrifiers and the the homeless together. Bring them together. Seat them at the table together. That's what the church is. It may be that we never see this, uh, you know, perfectly lived out in our, in our generation. We may never see homelessness and gentrification finally resolved in, uh, like on this side of the kingdom. But eventually we will. And so we keep serving in that direction. Eventually it's going to happen. And so that's why we serve. That's why we pray so that there will be less suffering and more justice and more love for Jesus. And that's when it will be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Amen. So, hey, let me close by sharing a few questions that uh, encourage us to take with us into our week. Uh, One question is this. If Jesus were in Hamilton today, where would we find him? What would he be doing there? Okay, if Jesus were in Hamilton today, where would we find him? What would he be doing there? Number two, what would a more just and equitable Hamilton look like to you? And question three is this. In what ways does your lifestyle show that you believe God has provided enough for everybody? Thank you for listening.